All right. Last week, Terry talked to us about trusting God. We're in the middle of a series where we are going through just our three principles as a church, our, our mission statement, uh, trust God, love people, share hope. Did I get that right? Okay, good. That would have been super embarrassing. Um, so we're going through that series talking about, uh, and specifically we're talking about trusting God right now. And one of the biggest parts about trusting God is trusting His Word. It would be pretty ridiculous uh, if you say, yes, I totally uh, trust Silas, but um, if I got a letter written from Silas uh, in his handwriting and uh, his name signed at the bottom uh, with a little picture of him going like this and say, nope, don't believe it, don't trust it, uh, that would be pretty ridiculous. Uh, and so part of trusting God is part of trusting His Word. And so this morning we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like. Uh, can you trust the Word? Uh, what does it look like to trust the Word? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm going to pray real quick, if that's all right. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, anoint this word this morning with your spirit. God, would you please fill me with your spirit to be able to preach this word in a way that's just clear, and um, yeah, I pray that Jesus, that you would fill all the rest of us, that this word would touch our hearts, and I pray that it would transform our minds just a little bit more this morning. We love you, and uh, we thank you for your presence here, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, Amen. All right, so talking about trusting the Word. Something that we talk about a lot at school, um, actually get a little sick of it because we talk about it so much, but we talk about the fact that uh, we live today in what they call a postmodern culture. Uh, and what that means is uh, there was, uh, you know, we've been in a postmodern culture for a few generations now or for uh, a few decades, but before we lived in a postmodern culture, we lived in a modern culture. And what they meant by that was... Uh, we believe in science, and we believe in an objective truth, and we believe that you can get to the truth about what life's about, how this world came to be, and everything else by science. And science and advancement and technology, uh, the world's just getting better, uh, and you know, science is, is the way that we get to the truth. And um, after that idea kind of started developing, um, we had what they called the Great Depression, uh, and then we had uh, what they called World War I, and then after that we had World War II and the Holocaust, and it was about that time that people started getting a little disenchanted with that philosophy, that, you know, we got science, and so basically it's going to help us just make the world a lot better, and uh, yeah, they saw the worst genocide that our planet has ever experienced, and we're like, okay, maybe we don't have the answer um, in science. And so we went from a place of, okay, we know the truth, uh, by science, and we, you know, we can figure out what is true and, and what life's all about through that, to a place of, well, we couldn't figure it out through science, and uh, so now we just don't think there's a truth, and truth is whatever works for you. Have you guys ever heard that before? You know, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. My truth is this, that truth is yours, and this is what works for you. And that's, that's where we live right now. That's kind of the, the philosophical climate that we live in. Well, we aren't really like that. We are not postmodernists in here, hopefully. We, for the most part, believe in objective truth. But instead of science, we say that the truth comes from God's Word. And most Christians believe that the Word is the basis for all truth and everything we believe about God and the world. So, you know, uh, some people 
it's good for us to uh, actually know what, you know, a, lo- a little bit about the Bible. It's good for us to uh, know that we have good basis to believe the Bible. Because a lot of us grew up in Sunday school and we're like, why do we believe the Bible? It's like, well, because the Bible says so. And it's like, that seems like circular reasoning. Uh, and most of us figure that out by the time we get into like eighth grade and start like asking real questions and stuff. Um, so I'm just going to talk just a minute about like the trustworthiness of the Bible. Um, I'm not going to be able to hit on everything, of course, but uh, here's the first thing I want to say is that the Bible can be trusted critically. The Bible can be trusted objectively. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, some people, uh, this is just one example, people talk about the Bible and they're like, specifically about the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, and they're like, uh, okay, so Jesus died around A.D. 30, and the earliest gospel that we have from him was written around A.D. 60. And some say even the latest one was 90. So we say take the median or something like that. It would be like 45 years after Jesus died. Uh, you, I think the next slide right here. Um, yep, that one. Um, but anyway, so they say that Jesus, if we just went with the average, 45 years after Jesus died is when we have the first biography about his life. And so people look at that and they're like, you know what, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. How is somebody supposed to accurately recount events of something that happened 45 years ago? That's fair, I suppose. Um, so, seems like a long time. But, it doesn't seem so long when I, for ancient history, this is pretty good. And here's what I mean. If you look at the lives, at the first biographies we have of other historical figures, this is starting to look pretty good. Uh, next slide right here. Uh, that's a symbol for Confucian, Con- Confucius, Confucianism. I don't know totally uh, how to say that. But uh, Confucius, first biography written about Confucius was 300 years after his life. That's pretty crazy. No, when that first biography was written, nobody who was alive when Confucius was alive was there to validate whether or not any of that was accurate. Uh, next one. Uh, that symbol means Alexander the Great, of course. I thought, I know, that's obvious, but I figured I'd explain that. Uh, first biography of Alexander the Great, nobody questions any of the uh, historical facts we have about him, but his biography was written 400 years after he died. That's nuts. And then after that, uh, Buddha's first biography was written 600 years after his life in the first century, and after that, a guy named Zoroaster, his first biography was written 1,300 years after his life, Okay. So when you look back at Jesus' 30 to 60 years, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. And here's the reason. It may have been 30 to 60 years after he had died that they wrote these biographies. But here's the kicker. is they're right, The people writing these biographies, Jesus' best friends and the people who hung out with Jesus, most of them were still alive when these biographies were being written. So you can't just say, like, Jesus' favorite color was red and Peter's sitting over here like, that's false. Jesus' favorite color was definitely blue. And so if there's any discrepancies, there's still all these people alive who can come back and say, hey, no, that's not right. This is the truth about, you know, whatever about Jesus. And so just a little bit of make you feel a little bit better about the Gospels and Jesus. Um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff like that. One little fun fact, I made some really cool graphics, but they were not very good, so I didn't put them up. But we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament. And what that means is uh, Paul sat down or, um, or Matthew sat down and they wrote the gospel of Matthew or they wrote the letter to the Thessalonians and uh, those letters all disappeared and went up and, you know, they just 
vanished, you know, history and stuff, and time is not good on pieces of paper. But those were all gone before the second century, two years, 200 years after Jesus lived, just because, like I said, uh, they just don't last very long. And so the reason that we have the Bible is because people went down and they copied Paul's letter, they copied the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, uh, over and over and over again, and just kept handing those down and, uh, over and over and over again throughout the years. Uh, and so... Here's the deal, is the more manuscript copies that you have, the closer you get to the original. You can see through all the evidence of the manuscripts, if you have more of them, you can see, okay, these all line up with these, these all line up with these, oh, we have a discrepancy here, okay, when did that happen? Oh, it happened at this year, and before that, this is getting really complicated, but the more manuscripts you have, the better it is to see what you have in the original copy, because some, here's, here's why I'm saying this, is the critique of the Bible a lot of times is, they wrote it like 2,000 years ago. How are we supposed to know, and it's been copied all these times, how are we supposed to know that we have, you know, what they originally said? It could have been nothing like that. Well, like I said, the more manuscripts you have, the better chance you have of getting at the original. Do you guys know of a guy named Plutarch? Probably not. Uh, I don't really. But I know that that guy, in history, we have one manuscript of his. That's it. If you think of Julius Caesar, we have ten of his manuscripts. Looks pretty impressive. Aristotle, we only have 49 of his manuscripts. Do you know how many copies of the New Testament we have? More than 5,800. It's pretty impressive. And it makes it that much more reliable of a document. So you can trust critically the Bible. You can trust it objectively. And I would also say that you can trust it subjectively. You, and what I mean is you can put it to the test. The Bible makes a lot of claims. It makes a lot of like very falsifiable claims where it says, if you do this, then this is going to happen. It's a test. It doesn't say, hey, if you do this, this might happen, this might happen, this may not happen. It says, hey, if A, then B. Here are just a few examples of that um, on the next slide. So there are a lot of verses like this in the Bible. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. There's a lot of passages like this in the Bible that claim if you honor the Lord with the very first of your wealth, the very first of your income, the Lord will bless the rest of your income. Has anybody experienced this ever? Have you ever? Thank you. Yes, testify. Amen. Got some hands up. Yeah, I've, I've seen this happen in my life. I have never once been like, uh, gone out on a limb and given of the first fruits of my wealth or given when I felt like the Lord led me to and then just the Lord totally hung me out to dry. Every time, I've seen this in other people's lives and in my lives, whenever I test out this principle, this F-A, if you do this, A, then you get B, I always see B. It always happens. Uh, there's other things in the word like this. Next slide. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna start using that. Okay. So uh, there's another one right here. James 5, 14 through 15 says, Is any one of you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. There are so many passages like this where the Bible says, if you pray for someone to be healed, they will be. How many of y'all have, have prayed for someone to be healed and, and seen it happen before? It happens, and it doesn't happen every time, and we'll get to that a little bit later in this message, but the Lord is saying, if you do this, then this will happen, 
And we've seen it happen. Another one is, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Here's the promise. said, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Has anyone experienced this? Over and over again, the Bible says that God will help you out of a temptation. And that's a pretty big promise. He says he will help you out when you're tempted. I stand here as a guy who was addicted to pornography for 10 years and found out that this was true. Standing here clean and standing here free from that sin because this is true. And that's a big reason that I believe the Bible is legitimate. is because of promises like this. This last one says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There was a guy that I'm reading about right now. His name is George Mueller. I think Paul talked about him um, a few weeks ago, just a little bit. But this guy was so full of faith. Uh, He preached in a church back in the 1800s, and back in that day, they had this little practice in a lot of churches where um, instead of like a tithe and, you know, giving your money like that, they would sell pews. And they would, if you wanted to sit in the good seats, you would pay in order to have those seats. And, you know, if you paid a lot of money and, you know, you were very regular, you had like your name in the back like engraved on there, very fancy. It doesn't, and like you would sit in the front, which doesn't make sense to me because I feel like the most expensive seats like these days would be like in the back, like paying top dollar to be as far away as possible. But this guy, he's like, you know, rightfully, he was like, ah, that seems wrong to me. Uh, that seems like favoritism to the wealthy, which the Bible has a few things to say about. And so he says, we're going to stop doing that. Uh, his wife was like, well, that's how we make our money. So uh, how are we going to make money? And he said, well, I think that the Lord will just provide for us. And so they stopped taking the money and they stopped selling pews and stuff in that church. And all they did was they put a offering box in the back of the, back of the church and they said, hey, if you feel led, put money in the box. But other than that, we're not going to be selling pews anymore. And so uh, what would happen was, and he also made a decision that, um, so the offering box was the elders would go and whenever it was full they would, or there was money in it, they would take it and go give it to him and that'd be how he made money. Uh, and he said a lot of times the elders didn't really think about taking the money out of the box and giving it to him. But he also felt a burden in his heart not to remind them, hey, I need the money that's in that box, you know, for foods. Uh, and so he would just rely on the Lord to give it when he needed it. And he said there'd be so many days where they would just, you know, they've run out, they're on their last dollar, they don't have money to buy bread for the meal that night, and uh, they would just stop and they would pray, all right, Lord, um, we need you to come through now. And they would pray, and all of a sudden, knock, knock, some lady from the church said, hey, I was praying, really felt like the Lord uh, told me that I need to come and give you some of this bread and some of my dinner tonight, and here's a few bucks. And that would happen over and over and over again. And he did that for a whole year. And at the end of that year, he stepped back and he said, I did not have a salary at all. My income uh, was just when people felt like giving to me or when the Lord provided miraculously in some other ways. And he said, I ended up being provided for more abundantly than I would have been if I would have taken a salary. And he actually went on after that to uh, start an orphanage based on the same principle where he they built an orphanage and filled it with orphans and provided for those orphans every single day for years without asking anybody for money. And the Lord just provided for it. It's things like that that made me look at the Bible subjectively and be like, man, this stuff, if you test out what it's saying, you're going to find out that it's true in what it's saying. 
I think that the Bible has the best explanation for how Christianity came about. Christianity was just a bunch of, was like just a bunch of poor people following around a guy who got murdered, and after that, somehow, it just exploded to, it just took over the whole, uh, that whole part of the world to where uh, now it's the biggest religion on the planet. And how can you explain that? Well, I think the best way to explain it is the guy that they were following uh, rose from the dead. All the other ideas, like a mass hallucination, like the disciples, all 500 of them who claimed to see Jesus, all saw the same hallucination, that's laughable. I just think that the Bible has the best explanation. And so it's these kind of things that make me think that the Bible is trustworthy. Just a few things um, about how we trust the Word. What does it look like to trust the Word? And the deal is that there are a lot of voices coming at us from all sorts of different directions about what is true, especially in our culture about everybody's got their own truth, right? I think the first thing on that note is that we have to trust the Word against is the culture. Here's the deal is there was a time when this book was really, really popular, uh, probably about 50 or 60 years ago, uh, where it was very, very unpopular to believe anything that was contrary to what this book said. We're no longer in that culture. We have to, whenever the Bible comes up against something that the culture is telling us, we have to take the Bible's word against what the culture is saying, even if it's unpopular. Here's the deal, y'all. It's not okay for a man to have sexual relations with another man. And it's not okay for a woman to have sexual relations with another woman. It's not okay to have a boyfriend if you're a dude, and it's not okay to have a girlfriend if you're a woman. And that's unpopular to say. I don't like saying that. That's not what I lead with whenever I'm first telling somebody, hey, you know Jesus? It's not okay to be gay. Here's the deal, and we can go through the reasons of like, okay, well, why is it wrong uh, to be gay? Uh, Well, the Bible talks about how it's not natural, and the Lord made us a different way. Uh, The Bible actually uses that argument, and I would say it's legitimate, but that's not the primary reason that I believe it's wrong to be gay. I just believe it because the Bible says it. And Jesus has been true in everything else he's said, and so even whenever it comes to this thing that's really difficult to believe, I have to believe him there too because I can't pick and choose. You either take it all or you leave it all. And that's rough. Whenever your friends say, hey man, it's really fun to go get drunk. It's like, yeah, it might be, but the Bible says that that's really bad for me. And following Jesus, I'm supposed to be filled with the Spirit, not full of wine. I have never done any drugs in my entire life. And I'm not saying that to brag. I grew up with amazing parents who parented me really well. um, And Jesus got a hold of me before I really had the opportunity uh, to get into that kind of thing. But here's the deal. Since that time, I've had a lot of people come up and say, you know, I'll tell them, yeah, I've never really done any drugs before. And uh, they're like, wait, like, don't you want to at least try it? Like, don't you want to at least try smoking weed? Like, it's legal a lot of places now and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, like, I'm kind of dumb for, to, for like, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, for counting it out without ever even trying it, right? At least I should try it. Well, I don't think so. Because I think that would be testing the Lord. Because he says in his word that he's called me to be alert and of sober mind. And for me to go out and test that, that would be me saying, God, I don't really trust that you have 
what's, I don't, I don't really trust that you have your best intentions for me in here. And so the point is, I don't have to go and try something that the Lord has already said not to do. I can trust his word that he has the best intentions for me, that he said that for a reason. Does that make sense? It's a good word for all of our middle schoolers and high schoolers. Don't go smoke any weed, okay? So we've got to trust God's word against our culture, but another thing we have to trust God's word against is actually our feelings. Here's the deal. This is what I love about the Bible, by the way, is that it's here in print and black and white. And my Bible says the, thing, says the same thing that your Bible says. John 3.16 in my Bible is God so loved the world uh, that he gave his one and only son, and your Bible says the exact same thing. You may have a different translation, but you get what I'm saying. All of our Bibles say the same thing, and so it's objective, and it stays the same every single day. It never changes. And the beautiful thing about that is we need something like that because our lives, they do change. They go like this. We have mountaintops and we have valleys. And our emotions are even worse. They're like this. It's really bad. And I think that's why God saw it necessary for us to have his written word. It's so that we can stand on promises and the things that he says no matter how we're feeling in a given day. And so I guess what I'm here to tell you is it doesn't matter if you feel like you're not valuable someday. Because objectively, I can tell you from the word that God sent his only son to die for you while you were a sinner so that he could have a relationship with you. And that's in black and white here. And that's not going to change yesterday, today, or tomorrow. If you feel like you're distant from Christ, if you feel like you're low and, and you may not have a relationship uh, with him right now and you just feel really far away from him Ephesians 2 6 says that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places at this moment and that's objective and that's something you can take to the bank and that's something you can preach to yourself when you're feeling distant from Christ it's the beautiful thing about our printed word is that it never changes no matter what we're feeling and there are times when you are going to feel like, hey, I feel like I'm this. I feel like I'm not worth anything. I feel like I don't have any value. Well, that might be a time where you need to, despite your feelings, break out your word and remind yourself and preach to yourself that you have value, that God loves you, and that everything he says about you is true. It's a beautiful thing. We have to trust God, trust his word against our feelings sometimes. And the last thing, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier, sometimes you need to trust God's word against your experience. And what I mean by that is, I was saying earlier that uh, our experiences oftentimes validate the things that the Word says, the things that God says in His Word. You know, we, we find out that if we tithe, God really does bless, bless our finances. We find out that, you know, praying for somebody in Jesus' name actually is effective. But there's also other times where we go and we see something in the Bible and we're like, I haven't seen that to be true. It must not be true. Going back to uh, the reference I made earlier is we say, you know, uh, well, I haven't really ever seen anybody get healed when I prayed for them before, and so I don't think God does that anymore. Where in the Bible, there's no expiration date on when he says that would stop. And so what I'm doing is when I go and try to change, I'm elevating my experience above what the Word says, saying, yeah, I know that this is what the Word says, but, uh, you know, I haven't seen that, so it must not be true. 
And I think that's a dangerous game to play. And we all do it in one area or another. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to honestly approach this Bible whenever we open it up and say, Jesus, I don't have it all figured out. And so I need you to, again today, lead me to the truth in this. Would you help me be transformed by, transformed by your word and not the other way around? And I just think that takes a lot of humility. And I pray that God helps me to do that too. So my last point, I feel like I need to preface it um, so I don't get any rocks thrown at me or anything like that. Um, I love the Bible. Uh, I try to read my Bible every day. It doesn't happen, but that's my goal is I try to read my Bible every day. I believe that the Word of God is, or I believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's infallible and it's inerrant um, and that it's true in everything that it says. Uh, I've put eight years of my life and lots of money into um, Bible school and just learning more about the Bible and reading the Greek and reading the Hebrew because I think it's that important. So let me preface what I'm going to say with that. We are supposed to trust the Word for many things. We're supposed to believe what it says. But there is something that we're not supposed to trust the Word for. Here's the deal. The Bible is not God. It is not Father, Son, Holy Scriptures. The Bible did not die for your sins. You cannot have a relationship with the Bible. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus died for your sins. You have a relationship with God. Why am I saying this? What does that mean? What's the difference? If you go to John chapter 5... Jesus is just roasting the Pharisees, as usual. Nothing new there. But he says this. He's saying, You have never heard his voice, talking about the Father, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Wow. That's harsh. And this is why he's about to tell them why it is that way. Why do they not see the Father? Why do they not have a relationship with God? Why do they not recognize the Father? And he says, this is why. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's rough. And that's pretty amazing because there's another time in in the scriptures where uh, Jesus says, hey, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures. How could these people, these people memorized the Torah. They memorized word for word the first five books of your Bible. It's like that thick. It's insane. So they knew the Bible. They had high value on it. But he accused them of not knowing the word. And he also accused them right here of not seeing the Father and missing out on eternal life because they're trusting the Scriptures for those things. Here's the deal. is If you, you can be a person who memorizes scripture, you can be a person who believes the Bible is inerrant and believes the Bible is infallible and you value the Bible so much but you could actually not have a relationship with God and be on your way to hell knowing all those verses and having such a high view of the Bible. This is what I mean. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Here's the kicker. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, 
yet you refuse to come to me and have life. This is the point. The Pharisees missed out because they made the Bible an end in itself. They said, we have the Bible, we have the Scriptures, and it is all about doing what these say. It's all about following these things. But they missed out on Jesus. The Bible was never made to be an end in itself. The Bible was made to be a pointer to Jesus. And if you can read your Bible and you can memorize Scripture, but you aren't getting Jesus out of it, you have missed the boat entirely. So I guess my proposition would be, read your Bible. Trust your Bible. Trust what it says over the culture. Trust what it says over your feelings. Trust what it says over your experience. But when you open it up, you should be praying, Jesus, help me see you in your word. Jesus, I want you, and as I'm opening up this Bible today, I'm not doing it to get more knowledge. I'm not doing it so that other people be impressed at the fact that I can memorize scripture. I'm not doing it so that I can trump somebody in a biblical argument. I'm doing it because I want more of you. So my prayer is that we could trust the word um, and find Jesus as we're trusting his word.